Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. For today's episode, we'll be playing an excerpt from a talk about Shakespeare. Professor James Shapiro is no stranger to Shakespeare. He has led lectures and seminars at Columbia about the Bard since 1985 and has written several books on the subject. The talk we recorded specifically references his newest book, The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606. In this talk, Shapiro discusses the significance of that year, the events that influenced Shakespeare's writing, why he chose to focus so intensely on Lear in this new book, and when his fascination with Shakespeare first began. So, curl up in a cozy armchair with a nice cup of tea and enjoy. Sixteen o six was a very, very bad year for England and a very, very good one for Shakespeare. And the reason that it was a good year for Shakespeare was that it was a bad year for England. In November sixteen o five, a terrorist plot, the gunpowder plot, was narrowly averted. An attempt by twenty or so uh, unhappy Catholic gentry who banded together planted 36 barrels of gunpowder under the House of Lords and hoped to blow up King James, the royal family, and the political and religious leadership of England. They failed. We still have Guy Fawkes masks to this day at protests internationally. But what people don't for, don't really remember, and those of us who lived through 9-11 do remember, is it's not just that day. It is the ensuing months in much the same way as we're watching in sadness what's going on in Paris and Brussels today, much the same thing was going on in England in late 1605. No one really knew how wide the conspiracy ran. And in the early months of 1606, the government was still hunting down and torturing, trying, and brutally executing the surviving gunpowder conspirators. So 1606 is profoundly marked by a period of unprecedented anxiety about this near miss that would have rolled back 60, 70 years of a Protestant Reformation in an attempt to restore Catholicism to the English uh, state. What's less well-known even by the English, is after the gunpowder plotters failed in London, they rode 90 miles north to Shakespeare country, hoping, now that their attempt to blow up Parliament had failed, to foment a Catholic uprising in the Middle East. Shakespeare owned a strip of land or rented immediately abutting the house where the gunpowder plot was, was designed and plotted, he lived four miles away from the arms cachet, and his next-door neighbor, a man named George Badger, was even the, the person uh, put in charge of Catholic relics that were going to be used and caught with a bag of relics that were going to be used after Catholicism would be restored to England. So he was intimately connected to this event, which spills out 
in remarkable ways, not only in a play he had started writing before and finished after November 1605, King Lear, but most famously in Macbeth, a play in which equivocation, a word that figured largely in the trials and in the imagination of the English who were responding to the gunpowder plot in which the conspirators were found to have a treatise of equivocation in hand that motivated them and that allowed them to swear to the authorities under oath and lie. All this is flowing into Shakespeare's work during this year. Shakespeare would finish King Lear, write Macbeth, and then go on to write a third great tragedy this year, Antony and Cleopatra, before the year's end. And that was an enormously successful and creative year for Shakespeare at age 42. I should say that he was coming off a slow period. We would all give our right hand to have written Twelfth Night, I'm sure, or at least a couple of fingers. But um, after writing Hamlet at the turn of the century, Shakespeare really slowed down. He was used to writing two, three, sometimes four plays a year. And after Hamlet, he was writing perhaps one play a year. Between Hamlet and King Lear, all that we can say with confidence that Shakespeare wrote was Twelfth Night, Troilus and Cressida, Othello, Measure for Measure, and collaborated on timing. That's a play a year. That's well below his ordinary output. So this year represents another one in which Shakespeare wrote in inspired bunches and wrote three extraordinary tragedies. I always thought of it as the year of Lear, uh, and that was the title that I was glad the American authors, uh, American publishers gave it. The reason why it's Lear-focused is one of the very few things we know about this play is that Shakespeare began writing it in uh, the summer or early fall of 1605 after the publication of an anonymous play called King Lear, L-E-I-R, rather than L-E-A-R. I'll get back to that in a moment. And the year, the calendar year of 1606, saw Shakespeare's play at Christmas time, December 26th, as the first play performed at court for the court holiday performances before King James. And in that sense, the play, in a sense, marked both the beginning and the end of this year. And its meaning changed from its composition to its staging at court before King James and Queen Anne at that time. Let me give you a little sense of what was so remarkable about this play. Let's say you and I uh, were regular theater goers in Elizabethan uh, times. And um, I love this play called King Lear, L-E-I-R, which had been on the boards from the early 1590s. We don't know who wrote it. Shakespeare must have. And it was a play that he could have seen and probably did see uh, sometime during the 1590s. And it's a play about a father and his three daughters, and the youngest one is named Cordella rather than Cordelia. And at the end of the play, King Lear is restored to his throne and reconciled with his young daughter, and it ends in a happily ever after way. So imagine you and I as veteran playgoers saying, 
Let's see what Shakespeare can do with King Lear. And we're going there because we need something uplifting. We need a happy ending. <laughs> and we go to see this play, and it's kind of like everybody's hit by a truck at the end. People must have staggered out of the theater. It's not just Shakespeare wrote the darkest, most apocalyptic play imaginable. It's that he did so in defiance of the expectations that playgoers would have had coming into uh, the Globe Playhouse that day. Why did Shakespeare write the plays he was writing at any given moment? And if you were writing three tragedies, why not write a trilogy much along the lines of the history sequences? You won't find three tragedies that are more unalike, if that is grammatically okay, uh, that are more different, uh, that are more distinctive than Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra. I feel the, the, the themes, the, the groundswell of concerns that shape all of them, that connect all of them, but they're really quite different. One of the ways in which I think of uh, Anthony and Cleopatra and write about this is a belated follow-up to Julius Caesar. I really think that, and if you read Julius Caesar carefully, which he wrote in 1599, Shakespeare left that play open-ended. You know that Augustus, Caesar, and Anthony are going to collide. There's just no way of ending at the moment that Shakespeare ended it. And it turned out for complicated political reasons that it was untimely to write a play that followed up on that story at that moment. Shakespeare had to put it aside until the complicated issues surrounding Queen Elizabeth and Essex and other subjects that were going on at this time that made it a sensitive, if not radioactive, subject. And he came back to it seven years later, and it became a Jacobean play rather than an Elizabethan play. And in many respects, it's a play about a longing for an Elizabethan moment. After three years of King James's rule, everybody in England already realized we do not have a winner here. This, and, and he's young, and we're going to have him for a very long time. Now, the gunpowder plotters acted on that impulse. Everybody else just went about their business thinking, I miss the old gal. And uh, in a way, Anthony and Cleopatra is a tragedy of nostalgia for their great queen and reflecting upon Egypt's great queen. Why Shakespeare wrote three tragedies in this year, I don't know. I just think these were plays that were kicking around in his head. King Lear for a very long time, Anthony and Cleopatra probably for six years, and Macbeth is certainly written in response to the moment and in response to another crisis that King James had tried to introduce into the realm. King James came down from Scotland. He had been, from nine months or 11 months of age, King James VI of Scotland. He succeeded Queen Elizabeth in 1603, and he also became King James I of England. And he stood before Parliament and said, look, I can't be married to two nations. Don't make me, and this is his word, a bigamist. I want to be married to one nation. 
So let's join England and Scotland in a united kingdom. He thought this was a great idea, and no one else did. So he minted a carnation medal talking about, I will make thee one nation. He ordered that a new flag be flown called, we now call it the Union Jack, in which the English and Scottish flags would be joined together. But he did not have the authority to join kingdoms. Only Parliament did. And uh, he created an identity crisis where there had not been one before. And we're now witnessing, if you talk about 9-11, I mean, the Scottish referendum and uh, undoubtedly with every election that's coming up in Great Britain, we're watching what was initially conceived of in 1603-6 and now pulling apart the Union of Scotland and England. All those issues were on the table in 1606. And James pushed really hard for this United Kingdom. And Shakespeare's, like many other writers, responded to this. I mean, Shakespeare knew how to exploit an identity crisis as well as any writer. And Macbeth is, in a sense, a play about Scotland and England. Shakespeare was done writing in, about English history. He was now writing about British history. And that, too, marks a turn. And that, too, characterizes two of the three tragedies he wrote in this year. But why he wrote one play rather than another remains a mystery. People ask me what's Shakespeare's greatest accomplishment, and I, and I really can't choose between two. One is that he wrote these plays after rehearsing plays in the morning, performing them in the afternoon, and in the evening when the actors ran off to drink and carouse, as they still do, he, he had to read and write late into the night. And he did all exactly. But he did this, unlike Al Smith, without the benefit of caffeine, because neither tea nor coffee had been introduced into England at this time. You know, that, that may well be Shakespeare, to my mind. No, no double espresso as you're pouring over your source materials for Macbeth. I don't know how he stayed away. So that's one. The other great, great uh, uh, characteristic of his, his genius is he stayed out of jail or prison. Almost every other major playwright of this time ended up falling afoul of the authorities. Ben Johnson and Chapman had just gotten out of jail. Marston was on the run, got out of the theater business. The children's companies even went too far in 1606 made fun of the Scots, they were thrown in jail. I mean, even kids, you know, adolescent actors were being jailed at the time. Shakespeare walked the line. It's not like he was Neil Simon giving people happy stuff. He understood that people only went to the theater to understand the political and social conflicts and rifts of the moment, and that would have lost him, playgoers, if he didn't try to engage in those issues. On the other hand, when King James came to the throne in 1603, one of his first acts as monarch was to choose a playing company, and Elizabeth had never done this, to choose a playing company that he would be the patron of. And he chose Shakespeare's company, and he said, you had been the Chamberlain's men, now you're the king's men. And here's four and a half yards of red cloth. Go have livery made. Livery is basically doormen's uniforms, so that you could show up in this beautiful red uh, costume 
and when the king wanted you, stand around and look important for court functions. So Shakespeare was patronized by King James, and it put him in an uneasy position, an uneasy position where uh, the king would be seeing uh, everything he wrote, and he'd be writing with full consciousness that his fellow actors would come up to him and say, do me a favor, don't push so hard, we have a good thing going here. Uh, and he managed to avoid that censorship. Now, there were things in the printed versions of the plays that were censored. There were two bodies of censorship at this time. The Master of the Revels was in charge of censoring anything that happened on stage. So when you finished writing a play, you sent it to him, paid a couple of shillings, and he put his stamp on it saying, this is okay. You could, you could stage certain things with greater license than you could print so that that if Shakespeare's company decided to publish any of his plays, they then had to take them to either the office of the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Bishop of London, and they would have to approve that text for printing. Let me use Richard II as another example and feed in a little bit what's happening this spring. The Royal Shakespeare Company is coming to BAM for a month-long residency in April of 2016. They're going to be doing Richard II, Henry IV, Part One and Two, and Henry V. Bam is going to be hosting this and putting on an exhibition. And the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. is sending up two of the most valuable texts imaginable. One of the only surviving quartos of Richard II from 1598 and a second quarto of Richard II from 1615. And they'll be in a display case open to a page in which King Richard hands over his crown to Bolingbroke. Now, this was so politically dangerous to publish a play about what it meant for a king to take his crown off and give it to another person at a time when Queen Elizabeth was quoted as saying, I am Richard II, know ye not that. So this was politically dangerous. You could stage the deposition of Richard II, but you couldn't print it. So when you go to BAM and look at the exhibition case of these two Folger texts, you'll see the pages open to the same moment in the play in Act 4, Scene 1, when King Richard hands over his crown, and in the Elizabethan version, it's airbrushed out. It's just missing. And in the Jacobean version, after she's been dead for 12 years, it's restored. So... The question of political censorship or dramatic writing is a very, very interesting and very complicated one, and Shakespeare knew exactly what he could get away with and walked up to that line. There have only been really a half dozen Shakespeareans at Columbia in the 20th century. And the first professors of Shakespeare in this country don't date back more than 125 years. So I feel part of an extraordinarily gifted tradition of Shakespeareans. And I feel the weight of that every time I walk into a lecture. And in six or seven years, we'll be happy turning it over to another person with, I'm sure, a completely different uh, a relationship to how we teach literature. 
the honest answer, the biographical question behind that, I'm, I'm happy to answer. I was a very good student athlete at Columbia. I was not a very good student at Columbia. Uh, I fenced at Columbia and uh, did well on a very good team. Uh, not as well as I'd hoped, but I put most of my commitment, undergraduate commitment, into fencing. I never took a Shakespeare course at Columbia. I never studied with Ted Taylor or anybody else. I heard he gave a lot of D's, and <laughs> and, and he did. And I, I already had enough bad grades. I didn't need more. Um, and I never studied. You know, I took Lid Hum and Red Lear like everybody else in this room. And by the way, this year they're changing the Lid Hum syllabus and trying out the Tempest rather than Lear for, for uh, uh, the sake of uh, trying something new. Um, but that was the extent of, I took a lot of English courses, but I never took a Shakespeare course. My Shakespeare uh, is um, born of Freddie Laker. Those of you who remember Freddie Laker and Laker Airlines flying people over from New York to London for $199 round trip back in the 70s. Uh, my brother, my big brother and I, and he's a professor of journalism now at Columbia, would uh, hold down crummy jobs selling Guatemalan handicrafts at South Street or something, quit August 1st, get on a plane and fly to Europe and bum around Europe for, you know, 50 or cents a night or a dollar. You can sleep in a church basement or a youth hostel. And we came to London and we started seeing plays. And it was like a drug for me, seeing some of the great, great actors of the uh, modern British stage performing Shakespeare. And it was a drug that was cheaper than the other drugs we were doing with fewer <laughs> side effects. And I really got addicted in a way my brother didn't. And I went back year after year, seeing 25 or 30 plays in 25 days, twice on days where you could see uh, uh, matinees. And after four, five, six, seven years, I had seen hundreds of really extraordinary plays, and I only went to Shakespeare and Stopper. That was it. You know. Somebody offered me tickets to Nicholas Nickleby for like a buck. No, thank you. I'm going to see a third-rate comedy of errors tonight instead. I was religious in pursuit of these plays. And uh, I've always been primarily not a new historicist, although I love doing research and, and I'm, I'm, I'm good at finding stuff, uh, kind of the pig with truffles school of criticism. But um, I really bring that theatrical theatrical approach to it. And for the last decade or so of my life, I'm spending more and more time in the room with actors and directors. And it took me about 20 years to actually get into the room because they don't want scholars in the room. They need scholars in the room, but they don't want scholars in the room. And I've had to approach this very, very, very slowly and cautiously. And now I get to work with the Royal Shakespeare Company in rehearsal. I advise all productions. If, if something's bad in the park this summer or last summer, you can blame me because I was instrumental in shaping it in, in certain ways. So, And I'm most heavily involved right now in the public theater's mobile Shakespeare, which is training a group of actors and a director who then take a play to Rikers, and 15 other prisons and uh, 
places where there are captive audiences who don't have cell phones that ring in the middle of performances. And I get to cut down these texts and I get to shape texts for different kinds of audiences today. So that's really where I'm coming from as so far as I'm repudiating new criticism. I just feel that I'm a product of a New York Times world, a New York Review of Books world, a world in which we always care about what's going on around us, a world in which we take trains to and from work rather than drive in isolation. And those are the kind of things that shape the kind of books I'm writing and the kind of audiences I'm trying to reach. And also, every, every one of you or most of you has a strong Columbia connection. I'm shaped by another 50 or 100 brilliant students every year at Columbia who bring their values and challenge me in ways that I'm not used to. I was teaching Richard III earlier this semester and was talking about his deformity, his hunchback, and I brought in pictures of what was dug up under a car park last year in England as they found his bones. And a student came to me the next day during office hours and said, I didn't feel you were sufficiently sensitive in talking about disability. And she was right. You know, you just don't realize the ways you're trained to think and speak, and you need students to call you out. And the wonderful thing about Columbia students is they do not hesitate to call out their professor. <laughs> Uh, they may be more polite than you were, but they are insistent. So the, the short and long answer to your question is those are the forces that shape how I rewrite and think. Do you all know about the Argonne Shakespeare plans? Anybody here ever been out to the Argonne Shakespeare Festival? Not enough. Uh, it's one of the great American Shakespeare organizations. It's been around since uh, 1935, doing extraordinary work. And this year, they just announced that they would hire 36 young, uh, leading American playwrights, many of them of ethnicities that are ordinarily not given the chances of the dominant culture, and they're going to turn over Shakespeare's 36 plays to them and assign each one a dramaturg. And they would be responsible for taking a Shakespeare play and turning it into modern English. That means you get rid of blank verse, you get rid of classical allusions, you get rid of the language of Shakespeare, which is all that actually we have of Shakespeare, since that is the kind of playwright and poet he was. And I thought this was a really bad idea. And so did everybody else I knew. And I work in the theater. I, I take plays that, like Macbeth last spring or Much Ado the spring before, that go to Rikers. And I could tell you, the guys in Rikers, for the most part, and the women too, I got to see women inmates respond to these plays. They are not Shakespeare fans to begin with. Many have never seen a Shakespeare play. Many have never seen a play. And they got the whole thing. I'm watching. There was one prisoner who I thought was leaving, and they were allowed to walk out. And Rikers, for much ado, he was only calling for somebody who knew sign language so that because he wasn't following it, he could uh, uh, get it signed for him. 
And uh, when Hero collapsed in the middle of that production on stage, six guys jumped up and yelled, she's down, she's down. I mean, they, they were there. And when Claudio backed away from a fight, 10 guys were shouting, pussy! You know, it was just, it was a production you wish you would have seen. So if the guys in Rikers get it, I can't believe that folks like us who go to Ashland can't. What happened was some gazillionaire, Palo Alto, internet guy went to see a play and didn't get it. And, and rather than actually bringing in Stephen Greenblatt from Harvard to tutor him in what the play was about, he just said, I will give you so much money that you will want to hire 36 young playwrights and, and dramaturgs to do this. And there's just some money you should not take. And this was money they should not have taken. And they took it. And um, I got to write an op-ed in my hometown paper. And it was, I was very happy, the most emailed story of that day because high school teachers everywhere were up in arms about this because this hit them where, where they live. And it hit me where I live too. And um, I recently, I got a call from the head of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival about two weeks ago. He wanted to have a sit down in New York. I had images, you know that Godfather scene when <laughs> they go to that Italian restaurant and, and Michael gets the gun from behind the toilet, you know. I, ch I got there before he did and checked out the, uh, checked out the space. And um, he's the nicest guy in the world. And um, I said, this is a really bad idea. And he didn't back up. And I said, the next thing that's going to happen is some rich person is going to come along and say, now I'm going to take these 36 translations and publish them and sell them to high school everywhere. And he said, I'd never let that happen. I said, you've already let that happen. I won't let it happen. And, uh, and I told him, uh, I'm going to continue pounding you, I think was the verb I used because I was being polite. And I will continue pounding. And you know what? It's going to be an utter disaster because it is not possible to rewrite Hamlet into modern English and because the people there don't know enough. They are not scholarly enough. They don't know the language. They don't know the cultural forces. They don't know enough about Elizabethan marriage customs to understand these plays well enough. And all they'll do is botch them. I begged him. Just give these 36 playwrights money. Let them create the next West Side Story or a different riff on Hamlet or another great American history play like um, Hamilton. If you want to see a great modern play written in blank verse, King Charles III is it. I just saw it this week. It's expensive and it's probably worth it. And you're getting to watch a modern play in blank verse that shows you what blank verse can do as a vehicle for actors. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with over 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, 
The Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights to delight the left and right sides of the brain. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get an even deeper look into the goings-on at Columbia, check out the blog that accompanies this podcast at thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.